and no expulsion, no attempt to silence us will stop us, but it'll only galvanize and strengthen our movement. And we continue to show up in the people's house. Power to the people. Yes, please. Power to the people. Indeed. Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the Internet. on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says everyone I know from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Don't look at me that way, Desi. (laughs) You're one of the people I know. It's true, and I do say that sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, we've got a lot to get to today, and it's, uh, apologies in advance, it's a grim start, but... Things will get much better by the end of this hour, I promise you, at least until we get to Desi's latest Green News report. Which are always fun. <laughs> we'll see. Fun anyway, is relative. It depends yeah, on your definition. We'll see. The, uh, as I promised, however, a grim beginning. The bank employee who opened fire at his Louisville, Kentucky workplace on Monday targeted specific people with the wildly deadly semi-automatic assault rifle that he bought perfectly legally just one week earlier, according to police on Tuesday. Louisville Metro Police Department Chief uh, Jacqueline Gwyn Valero said at a news conference that the 25-year-old disgruntled bank employee uh, bought the AR-15 rifle on April 4 at a local dealership. I guess he was just trying it out on Monday. Armed with the rifle, the man killed five people, including a close friend of Kentucky's Democratic Governor Andy Bashir. And by the way... Uh, That longtime very close friend of Bashir was also apparently a very close friend of a friend and banker of terror supporting high powered weapons promoter Republican Senator Rick Scott of Florida. That, according to the senator himself on Monday. That's right, Rick. The bill that you voted to block that would have banned the easy sale of assault weapons and might well have saved your friend's life. Well, nice work, Rick. Uh, I hope you didn't don't feel terrible about it at all. 
blocking that bell, but them's the brakes, I guess. In addition to the five killed by the shooter, including Rick Scott's close friend, another eight people were wounded in what the National Gun Archives pegged as the 146th mass shooting since the start of 2023. The archives defines a mass shooting as an event in which four or more people are shot and or killed, not including the shooter. Since Monday's shooting in Louisville, by the way, we're already up to 147 mass shootings with another one in D.C. on Tuesday in which uh, one was killed and three others were injured as of airtime. By the time you hear this broadcast, well, there may have been any number of more mass shootings because, well, God bless America. The Louisville police chief said that a rookie officer who was shot in the head while responding to the mass shooting remained in critical but stable condition as of Tuesday morning, and that thankfully uh, it is, quote, looking hopeful for him. The officer, Nicholas Witt, uh, Wilt, had graduated from training just 10 days earlier. His potentially fatal injury is yet another one that Republican Senator Rick Scott, who pretends to be a supporter of law and order, at least when he isn't making excuses for Republican insurrectionists who critically injured about 140 cops that were protecting him on January 6, 2021, at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, well, presumably Rick Scott is cool with uh, all of this since he has repeatedly prevented legislation that might have prevented this mass shooting entirely, including of both his friend and that police officer. The uh, chief in Louisville said Wilt and other officers, quote, unflinchingly engaged the shooter at Old National Bank and stopped him from killing even more people. But since the weapon used in the mass murder was sold easily and legally just days earlier to the shooter, thanks to folks like Rick Scott, well, oh, well, them's the brakes, I guess, right? Sure, we could ban the sale of these high-powered uh, quick-firing semi-automatic weapons of war and mass destruction and the uh, extended magazines that make them uh, make these mass killings just so easy. We could ban them the way Democratic President Bill Clinton did in 1994, at least until Republican President George W. Bush allowed that perfectly constitutional federal ban on assault weapons to expire in 2004. But if we did, then Republicans like Rick Scott would, you know, frankly, they would have less money for their reelection campaigns. So, you know, it's kind of a trade off. The Louisville shooting comes just two weeks to the day after a former student killed three children and three adults at a Christian elementary school in nearby Nashville, Tennessee, where that state's Republican governor and his wife also had friends who were killed in that shooting. After that, Republican governor similar, similarly prevented laws that might have prevented the deadly shooting. In a state where a wildly gerrymandered state legislature decided punishing pro-gun safety black state legislators for being pro-gun safety and black was a better use of their time than making uh, Tennessee safe for its residents. In the bargain, those legislators appear to have shot themselves in the foot, though thankfully only figur figuratively at the moment. 
But boy, howdy, does it reveal how terrible these state Republicans are at, frankly, the simple act of politicking. Just moments before air on our previous broadcast, the Nashville Governing Council had voted unanimously to send expelled Democratic State Rep. Justin Jones back to office to be his own temporary replacement following his own expulsion by Republicans from the wildly gerrymandered 75 to 24 GOP-controlled uh, Tennessee State House last week. Moments later, after the uh, uh, unanimous 36 to 0 vote of the Nashville Metropolitan Council, Justin Jones was reinstated at the state legislature pending a special election to fill the seat from which he was expelled and then selected to fill on a temporary basis until the special election, which Jones says he will also be running in. Jones was one of two young black Democratic men who were expelled by the white Republicans who run the state house for the crime of having encouraged young peaceful protesters at the state house who were calling for gun safety laws following the murder of three nine-year-olds and three adults at the Christian elementary school just two weeks ago. In that killing, the shooter had legally purchased as many as seven weapons and was able to fire more than 150 rounds at the school in less than 15 minutes. The white female Democratic legislator who also encouraged the uh, protesters at the Capitol, all, by the way, during a time when the House was actually in recess. Well, that white female uh, Democratic legislator, as I'm sure you heard, she was allowed to keep her seat, which she chalked up to the color of her skin. Now, uh, for the record, when I suggest that Republicans are terrible at politicking, let me offer just one observation that I... Uh, I don't I don't know that I've heard uh, folks note directly, but it deserves to be noted. Uh, Jones and similarly his expelled colleague, Justin Pearson, they were both voted out of the House last Thursday, the day before Good Friday and then Easter weekend. So they were expelled on Thursday. And on the very next business day. On Monday, Jones was reinstated to the very same seat. In other words, Jones did not even miss one day of work. That's pretty good. One day of state legislating after his expulsion and then his reinstatement the next business day. Well done, Republicans. You really thought that one through. Because in the meantime, the white authoritarian Republican grandees who run the state house as if this was, I don't know, 1952 or earlier. Well, they've made a national spectacle of themselves, incurring the wrath of voters in the state and across the nation. So smartly done, boys. Jones took his oath of office again. On Monday, the next business day after being expelled on the steps of the Capitol uh, in Nashville and entered the building while supporters sang this little light of mine. A loud round of applause erupted as Jones walked into the chamber with Democratic Rep. Gloria Johnson, who was also targeted for expulsion, but she was spared. They walked past Republican legislators who appeared to be all but seething in their chairs because, well, they weren't able to control this boy 
in a state house where expulsion is, by the way, rarely, if ever, used. And when it has been in the past, it's been as a punishment for lawmakers accused of serious misconduct as opposed to. Uh, as a weapon against political opponents, as the Republicans chose to use it here. That is what desperate, unpopular Republicans on the wrong side of both history and issue after issue are now trying to do. Nonetheless, Representative Jones was gracious in his first remarks on the House floor upon his return. Representative Jones. Thank you. Mr. Speaker, I want to welcome the people back to the people's house. I want to I welcome democracy back to the people's house. That on last Thursday, members of this body tried to crucify democracy, but today we stand as a witness of a resurrection of a movement of a multiracial democracy that no unjust decision will stand. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for the days ahead for, uh, for Tennessee, not because of the actions of this body, but because of the actions of the people out there and the thousands gathered outside this chamber right now who are calling for something better, who's who, who responded to your attacks on democracy with an attack of a mass movement for social justice and racial justice and economic justice to restore the heart of our state. And so I want to thank you all, um, not for what you did, but for awakening the people of this state, particularly the young people. Thank you for re reminding us that the struggle for justice is fought in one in every generation. And so the people of Tennessee, I stand with you. We will continue to be your voice here. And no expulsion, no attempt to silence us will stop us, but it will only galvanize and strengthen our movement. And we continue to show up in the people's house. Power to the people. <laughs> Power to the people, indeed. Uh, <laughs> I have a feeling the Republicans good. were not expecting that uh, that kind of response. Oh, sad. Uh, he is uh, very good. Also uh, very good is the other expelled representative, Justin Pearson. Uh, he could be reappointed on Wednesday at a meeting of the Shelby County uh, Commission. That's near Memphis as young protesters outside the state capitol on Monday held signs reading no Justins, <laughs> no peace. In the span of just a few days, in fact, not even one business day at the Tennessee Capitol, the, uh, those two had raised thousands of campaign dollars and the Tennessee Democratic Party had received a jolt of support from across the nation. That wasn't the only embarrassing loss for uh, autocratic wannabe Tennessee state Republicans, however, on Monday. As Jones was restored to his position, Nashville scored a win in court over a different move that uh, was targeting the city by state-level uh, Republican officials. A three-judge panel temporarily blocked implementation of a newly adopted adopted state law that attempts to put Democratic-leaning Nashville's Metro Council, the one that just unanimously voted to appoint Pearson uh, Jones as his own replacement, uh, a bill that would put that Metro Council, uh, would cut it in half from 20 members, from 40 members to just 20 members. But for now, Nashville's Metropolitan Council will get to keep all 40 of its seats under a temporary decision that was issued on Monday by three state judges stymieing that effort by state lawmakers, state Republican lawmakers who'd hoped to cut the council in half after it uh, blocked the 2024 Republican National Convention 
from coming to the Music City. Nashville has operated under a combined city-county government system with 40 council members since 1963 when leaders were wrestling with consolidating the city and surrounding county as advocates worked to ensure that black leaders maintained strong representation there. Well, that was their first accident right there. That was no wonder (laughs) the state needs to clean that up. The new statute would require Nashville to craft new council districts by May 1. That's a deadline that city officials say is unreasonable. And the three state court trial judges Agreed, saying there is, quote, a compelling public interest in preserving the integrity of the metro election process that is already underway. So they wanted to come in right in the middle of the election and say, oh, you 40 people who are are running for office, uh, you work it out between you, but we're only going to have 20 now. More big government interference from Republicans. Yeah, apparently so. They like it. Nashville uh, government officials who filed the lawsuit have argued that changing a council's makeup now will throw the year's elections into chaos because it would require redrawing district boundaries after more than 40 candidates have already launched their campaigns. But of course, chaos is a weapon of war for authoritarians. They like it. That's the point. Monday's ruling, however, blocked the requirement pending the lawsuit's outcome. Quote, the court finds the implementation of the act and its reduction uh, reduction provisions at this late date results in upheaval of the election process, risks voter confusion, and potentially com- uh, compromises the integrity of Davidson County's August 3, 2023 general election, according to the judges. And yes, the upheaval of election, the uh, voter confusion, The compromise of election integrity, those are all tools of the autocrats who, for now anyway, appear to be losing and losing badly. City officials have said the scheme violates the state constitution. A quarter of Nashville's council seats are held by black members, half by women, and five members who identify as LGBTQ+. Well, that's got to end. Tennessee's GOP dominant state house passed the law having the number of uh, halving, having, cutting in half the number of seats earlier this year. One of many proposals that Republicans have introduced to specifically target and upend politics in Nashville. One bill, for example, would have renamed a portion of Nashville Rep. John Lewis Way that was named after the late civil rights icon would have renamed that street to, wait for it, Trump Boulevard. Really, seriously. That legislation uh, has since been spiked for the year. But why? You guys should totally try again. I think it would be great for state Republicans. Do it. Don't let those uppity folks push you, you guys around. You're in charge. This is your state. Am I right, fellas? Change John Lewis Way to Trump Boulevard. It'll work out great. Another measure would uh, block cities from using public funds to reimburse employees who travel out of state to get an abortion. Tennessee's abortion ban is one of the strictest in the nation because, you know, Republicans stand for freedom. 
So anyway, uh, you know, let's hope they don't fold on that one because Tennessee uh, Tennesseans really do love all of the restrictions that you guys are putting in on abortions. You better hurry to get more of them done. Uh, before the end of this legislative session, especially before next year's election, so you can really feel the love of your constituents. I know they'll want to thank you in 2024 for all that you will have done for them. Meanwhile, as Justin Jones is calling for the same common-sense gun safety legislation that the vast majority of Tennesseans foolishly want to see adopted at the state house. You know, things like red flag laws, banning militarized weapons like AR-15s, passing universal background checks as brave Republicans are preventing those sorts of things from passage. Well, Jones, standing atop the well-deserved high moral high ground here, is now calling for the Republican Speaker of the House, Cameron Sexton, the one who led this pointless ouster of Jones, calling for him to resign. As he should, frankly, in shame just for being terrible at politics. But certainly after embarrassing the entire volunteer state over the past several days. Today is an important step forward for democracy, Jones said on the Capitol steps before entering as a legislator again. One business day after being expelled. But it's not the end, he said. They tried to kill democracy last Thursday. He added, we will continue to show up here in the legislature because Speaker Cameron Sexton needs to resign. In a separate interview on uh, Monday night, Jones called Sexton, quote, the greatest enemy to our democracy and renewed his public call for the state House Speaker to resign. I think this, this is a time of reflection for the Republican leadership, that they were so drunk and arrogant with power that that they are being humble to say that their attacks um, may have been successful in the past, but this is a new day, a new time in Tennessee, and there's a new movement rising up, that the South will rise anew. And so the House Speaker, I definitely will uh, will join with the, the coalition of people across the state calling for his resignation because he is the greatest enemy toward democracy. But, but what more importantly, what we're calling for is the restoration of democracy in the people's house. We don't need a speaker who shuts off microphones, who cuts off members from speaking, who won't even let, a, let us vote if we go join you know, those protesting who will cut off our voting machines, kicks you off committee. We have a, a speaker who does not, who represents the opposite of democracy, which is autocracy. And, and he has not fit to serve in that role. And so I join with the members of the community calling for his resignation. You go. You go, Justin. Uh, democracy can use, frankly, as many friends as possible right now in Tennessee and in the nation. And in the world. So, uh, frankly, glad you're on our team and on the right side of history. Justin Jones and Justin Pearson. Yeah, they're really, really powerful speakers. And I, I hope they have a very long and successful political career ahead of them. Mm -hmm. But wait, there's more. Uh, yesterday, Popular Information, a newsletter from Judd Legum, published an article that posed this question. Where does the Tennessee House Speaker actually live? 
The issue, apparently, is that Speaker Cameron Sexton represents District 25, which encompasses the community of Crossville. That's about two hours outside of Nashville. Under the Tennessee Constitution, Sexton can only represent District 25 if he is, quote, a qualified voter of that district. Well, funny thing. A popular information investigation uncovered substantial evidence that Sexton and his family lived year-round not in Crossville, but in Nashville. The uh, piece cited property records, school enrollment, the observation of his neighbors in uh, in Crossville. Sexton's office, however, did not respond to a request for comment. (laughs) But after yesterday's story was published and spread quickly online, Sexton actually did communicate with Phil Williams, a high profile Tennessee reporter. Williams reported that, quote, Sexton argues as speaker he has to be in Nashville so often that it's easier to have his family here. So uh, I guess that's the answer to the question, says Legum. Sexton and his family do live in Nashville, despite what appears to be the very specific mandates of the state's constitution that they can only represent the district in which they live, in which they vote. But wait, there is still more. In addition to not living in Crossville, Sexton, as it turns out, has also not paid his property taxes on his two-bedroom condo in Crossville for the last two years. That according to the Cumberland County website. Now, under Tennessee law, Legum notes, the place where a married person's spouse and family have their habitation is presumed to be the person's place of residence. So now that Sexton admitted that he and his family do live in Nashville, there is a presumption that Sexton also resides in Nashville for the purpose of voting registration. And that would make his representation of District 25 unconstitutional under the state constitution since he would not be, quote, a qualified voter of that district. Now, there is another section of the Tennessee residency laws that might allow Sexton to live in Nashville, quote, while employed in service of this state, unquote. But the state legislature is only in session for four months out of the year. And by his own concession to that reporter Williams, uh, Sexton lives in Nashville with his family all year round. Yeah, where are his kids going to school? It sounds like Nashville. Now, even if you uh, include his extra work as speaker, sure, the session is the the legislators are only there for four months out of a year, but he's the speaker. So maybe he's got to do a lot more work. Maybe he's got to be there year round. Right. Well, according to the 2022 House ledger sheet, Sexton reported working on official business just 42 days outside of the four month legislative session. But when he is not conducting official business, Sexton still appears to live in Nashville. An attorney in Tennessee who litigates election law issues, uh, including residency challenges, agreed that there were legit issues about whether Sexton was actually a legal representative of his own district. He said he's not the first speaker to do that, to live in Nashville, just the first one to expel members while his own house is not in order. He added that uh, at the moment, quote, the legislature, in this case, the wildly gerrymandered GOP controlled legislature is the sole arbiter of any member's qualifications. So it's up to Sexton's colleagues to decide whether he or any rep should be 
expelled. He said that Sexton's residency could be challenged, however, in court if he decides to run for re-election. Hmm. And I would note that if he did, do you think the residents of Nashville, where he lives, would actually elect Republican Cameron Sexton to the House next year? Responding to Legum's coverage, investigative journalist Radley Balco notes on Twitter today, man, this expulsion is proving to be a massive own goal. The expelled lawmaker has got a national platform and a glut of donations. He notes the expellers, on the other hand, are getting national attention, too, just not the kind that they want. Maybe not the kind that they want, but it's the kind that they are deservedly getting as they demonstrate yet again how gerrymandering corrupts the system, the entire system, to the point where those who essentially steal power from the people lose all sight of what the people actually want. That, after we have seen Republicans uh, punished in theoretically red state after theoretically red state at the ballot box due to their anti-freedom positions on abortion and, yes, their anti-pro-life positions on gun safety. One more story uh, along these lines before we get to a break and some encouraging labor union news today. I told you things would get better. Yeah. Uh, which is another story uh, that Republicans have decided to be on the wrong side of. Anyway, some related election news here. Last week, in addition to the election in Chicago, where Brandon Johnson, the more progressive labor union supporting of the two candidates that were running for mayor in the Windy City, stunned everyone and won his race. Let's go, Brandon. <laughs> uh, and on that same day, in the great state of Wisconsin, where a liberal majority retook control of the state Supreme Court for the first time in 15 years, huge news. And it was done in no small part thanks to the liberal candidate who ran to protect reproductive freedoms in the closely divided battleground state where she won by a whopping 11 points. On that same day, there was actually some local elections elsewhere around the country, including in places like Anchorage, Alaska, where the Anchorage Daily News uh, reported last night, quote, there's a lot of conservatives waking up this morning not happy about the preliminary election results. That was a quote from Amy Demboski speaking during her morning talk radio show last Wednesday. The former Eagle River, Eagle River Assembly member and municipal manager spent the program going over early Anchorage election returns that disappointed many so-called conservatives in the municipality, with progressive and moderate candidates pulling off a near sweep in six of seven races that were up last week for the 11-member Anchorage Assembly. The Anchorage Assembly is the governing body for Anchorage. It's kind of like their the city, city council. council. Exactly. Yeah. Demboski said not only are races being won by the liberal candidates, but in a much bigger percentage than most of us who do political analysis expected. Well, speak for yourself, Demboski. The paper goes on to, uh, to note how the results for progressive candidates were 
apparently much higher than expected, resulting in a 9-3 Democratic lock on the Anchorage Assembly in a city that comprises 40% of the state's population. Pay attention. It is also uh, where Republicans in Alaska may be going terribly wrong of late. Now, you might think, well, this is Alaska, it's a red state, and Anchorage, well, that must be a very, very blue part of the state, but not really. It's kind of divided, and it's getting progressively bluer each year, it seems, of late in both Anchorage and, by the way, the rest of the state. Anchorage split its vote. In 2020, it voted for Republican Dan Sullivan for the U.S. Senate by about three points. And it voted for the independent candidate that was endorsed by the Democrats, who was running for the U.S. House, by about two points. So kind of split. They also voted for Joe Biden, however, over Donald Trump by a two point margin. Now, that does not seem much, but it is notable because it was the first time in 56 years since 1964 that Anchorage voted for a Democratic presidential nominee over a Republican. First time in 56 years. Now, the state, yes, ultimately went to Trump in 2020, but only by 10 points. And I say only, 10 points is a lot, but I say only because in the previous race, the state went to the Republican by about 15 points. And prior to that, by 15 points. Prior to that, by 22 points. Prior to that, by about 30 points and so on. So by less and less each year, Republicans are still voting Republicans over uh, for Republican presidential candidates overall, but by less and less each year. And I also probably don't need to remind you that the state rejected the entire state, flat out rejected Republican Sarah Palin, not once, but twice last year in both the special election and the general election for U.S. House to fill the state's only seat that had been filled previously for some 50 years by Republican Don Young. He died after the 2020 election. So Alaska is arguably getting bluer and bluer each year. The Anchorage Daily News notes that there is a leftward political shift to the city's Demographic and economic changes in the last decade as the oil industry jobs have declined amid the years-long oil slump. To the extent that those blue-collar workers have now been replaced, it's by more white-collar and healthcare workers who tend not to vote as re reliably Republican. Many older residents who tend to vote more conservatively are retiring out of state. As Daily Coast diarist Old Man River observed last night, not only did Republicans lose in Anchorage, but they lost due to structural changes that will only continue to pile up against them. Alaska, he notes, is a jewel waiting to be picked up by Democrats with such a small population and their willingness to elect moderate Democrats, as shown by the statewide election of Mary Peltola to the U.S. House. Just project this drift out a few more years, he said, and Democrats could solidify the whole West Coast. Alaska is the last state still leaning red on the West Coast. 
Now, Old Man River is a little bit more bullish on the point than I am for the moment, but it is worth watching, and particularly as Republicans continue to find all new ways to shoot themselves in the foot as they continue to overreach and double down on stupid even while opposing wildly popular stuff like abortion rights and gun safety legislation and health care and labor rights and so much more. So, yeah, things are terrible right now in a number of regards. And, yeah, these folks are going to continue fighting like caged animals as it gets harder and harder for them to hold on to power. So, yes, it is going to get ugly, but I would uh, argue that if they keep it up at some point in the not necessarily distant future, they're going to be losing uh, control of even so-called red states if they keep up this crap. Josh Marshall of TPM uh, likes to quote uh, someone else. I didn't have time. I, I didn't get to look it up, so apologies to who originally came up with this, but... Uh, he likes to quote someone who uh, noted as Donald Trump was coming to power that uh, the Republican Party is basically a failed nation and Donald Trump, its warlord, which sounds about right to me. And I'm not sure how long failed nations can continue to survive, especially once their warlord is in jail. Anyway, getting ahead of myself, let's take a quick break and we will come back with, as I promised, some good labor news that Republicans should be furious about as well. Also, Desi Doyne in the Green News Report. That's yep. ahead also today. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I know you're tired. I know you're hurting. I know you broke down to the bone The bills are paying and the smiling faces Waiting on you at home and It ain't always easy It ain't ever like you planned all But man, ain't it working, working man And the working woman Welcome back to the Bradcast Brad Friedman from bradblog.com So uh, two weeks ago or so on the day that uh, news of Donald Trump's criminal indictment in New York had interrupted our plans mid show. I had hoped to cover a whole bunch of good news labor stories. Allow me to hit just a couple of those briefly, along with then uh, a couple more from over the past day or so that are just coming in. All good news, I think. Two weeks ago, Michigan became the first state in decades to repeal its so-called right-to-work law, or as our friend Tom Hartman calls it, right-to-work-for-less law, when Governor Gretchen Whitmer 
Democratic governor signed legislation to rescind the state's so-called right-to-work law. The repeal of the anti-union law is a major victory for labor unions in the state amid record-low union membership nationwide, even as public support for unions is now at a 50-year high among the same public. Something that apparently Republicans have yet to notice. So-called right-to-work laws allow employees at unionized workplaces to enjoy all of the benefits that union workers receive, but without having to pay to join that union and to opt out of paying dues, even where they are allowed. In fact, federal law mandates that they be allowed to enjoy all of the very same privileges that the union negotiates for its workers. In other words, it allows those people to be free riders. That's what so-called right-to-work laws are about. Repealing the law was among Michigan Democrats' top priorities after the November midterm elections last year, in which the party won control of both houses of the state legislature with a Democratic governor in office for the first time in four decades. And that only happened, by the way, because a statewide ballot initiative in 2018 was approved by voters that created an independent redistricting commission, which ended Michigan uh, Republicans' years of gerrymandered state legislative districts. See how democracy works when it's actually employed. The uh, anti-union law in Michigan was first implemented back in 2012 when Republicans had control of both houses and former Governor Rick Snyder was in office. Uh, Whitmer also signed a prevailing wage law into effect that requires contractors who are working on state projects to pay union level wages. Republicans had repealed that law, repealed it in 2018. Because, you know, Republicans love to lie to you about giving a damn about the working class who they undermine any way that they possibly can when they take office or when they steal office and then pretend they're out there fighting for the forgotten man. Michigan State Senator Darren Camilleri, a Democrat who sponsored the bill to overturn the anti-union law, said in a press release that Michigan's action is the first time in almost 60 years that a state has overturned such a law. Uh, Good news. Yes. Also, uh, late last month, Chipotle Mexican Grill agreed to pay $240,000 to former employees as part of a settlement stemming from a complaint that the company violated federal law by closing a restaurant where workers wanted to unionize. Chipotle announced it was permanently closing its Augusta, Maine location last year right after workers had filed a National Labor Relations Board petition for a union election at the shop. The NLRB later said that closing the store was, yes, illegal. The main location was the very first in the chain to file a union petition. Two dozen employees will now receive payments from Chipotle and they will be placed on a a preferential hiring list for other main locations. The company must also post a notice in dozens of stores in New England that it won't close stores or discriminate against employees due to union support, according to the settlement. (laughs) Okay. We'll see if they follow it. There are currently 10 other open, unfair labor practices against Chipotle 
according to Kayla Blado, a spokesperson for the National Labor Relations Board Office of Congressional and Public Affairs. Of course, the penalties, you know, generally for violating National Labor Relations Act laws are so small that companies routinely violate them to prevent the formation of unions because they'd rather just pay the penalty than follow the rule of law. It's cheaper for them to just violate the law. Apparently, that's what they seem to think. And, you know, it's cheaper than allowing their workers to collectively bargain for rights and wages and stuff, as we have discussed on this show a number of times with UC Santa Barbara labor historian Nelson Lichtenstein. Uh, And now this week, some more good labor union news. The union representing thousands of L.A. school workers has voted, quote, overwhelmingly to approve a new contract with the Los Angeles Unified School District after last month's three-day strike, union officials said in a news release over the weekend. More than 99% of the Service Employees International Local Union, uh, International Union Local 99, 99% of their members voted to approve the new agreement. According to the union, which represents about 30,000 Los Angeles school custodians, cafeteria workers, bus drivers and other student services staff, the uh, board of uh, L.A. Unified LAUSD. Uh, also has to vote on the agreement, which the union said includes includes a 30 percent wage increase fully paid family health care benefits that will expand to teachers, assistants and after school program workers, among others. It's a major step forward with significant improvements to wages, work hours and benefits for dedicated education workers who have been left behind for far too long, said the SEIU Local 99's executive directors. Director, members went on strike for three days last month, but that apparently was enough to uh, get this agreement uh, hammered out. Yeah, it turns out it's hard to run a school system without support staff, especially one this size. They halted classes for more than a half a million students who are served by the nation's second largest school district. The uh, United Teachers L.A. Union also supported the school workers strike, urging its members to join picket lines and rallies in solidarity. The strike followed nearly a year of unsuccessful negotiations with the L.A. USD. We are not (laughs) asking for the world. Well, it took them a whole year to finally figure out, oh, yeah, I guess we should really negotiate with the school staff. Apparently so, because that's what it took. It took a year and three days of walkout. Mm hmm. Custodian uh, Jose Tovar told a local news outlet, we're not asking for the world, uh, but just to live above water. Is that asking too much? Same thing is true, by the way, for workers at hotels outside of New York City, according to an exclusive report on Monday from the Wall Street Journal of all places. A New York hotel union has reached a deal with hotel owners and operators that will boost the wages of hospitality workers by $7.50 an hour. That is the largest increase in the union's 100-year history. The agreement covers 7,000 members of the Hotel and Gaming Trades Council who work at 87 suburban hotels spanning from Princeton, New Jersey to New York's Albany region and Long Island. The wage increase reflects the intense pressure that hotel operators are now under to pay workers more 
amid inflation and lingering labor shortages. Despite a recent hiring spree by the hospitality industry, hotel uh, owners across the U.S. have struggled to find and retain workers during the pandemic. During which we have been saying uh, for years now, well, you know, if you just paid them more. Before the pandemic, hotel owners in areas with low union representation like Miami or Atlanta would likely shrug at generous wage and benefit increases in New York. That, according to David Sherwin, a Cornell University professor and director of the Cornell Center for Innovative Hospitality, Labor and Employment Relations. But recent successes by union organizers at companies such as Starbucks and Amazon could, in fact, prompt hotel operators elsewhere to consider preemptively raising their compensation packages at these non-union hotels. So you see, the unions help you out even if you are not in a union, yes, super geniuses. Pay attention, and yes, you're welcome. Under the new union contract in New York, housekeeper and front desk worker hourly wages will now increase from about $20 an hour to $27 an hour by 2028. Hourly pay for cooks could grow to about $31 an hour. The agreement raises employer contributions to the union's defined benefit pension plan by 40% over the life of the contract, which includes New benefits to subsidize child care and housing costs. Uh, the uh, union president, Richard Morocco, said wage and benefit increases like this absolutely benefit hotels in terms of retention. Having trouble finding people to work? Pay them properly. The union's first contract covering suburban hospitality workers was signed by four hotels in 2013 and has now grown to include nearly 90 properties. This rapid growth gave it gave the union added leverage necessary to extract significant wage increases. Free Bryant, for example, who earns $23.30 an hour working at the front desk of a Doubletree in northern New Jersey, said that she has been planning to leave after 18 years with the hotel, but she has changed her mind after hearing the details of the new contract. See how that works? She said, I'm going to stick it out because this contract is good. All thanks to unions. Now, remind me again, which party supports labor unions and which one keeps passing laws to try and kill them? And hopefully, Democrats will figure out how to remind folks of that between now and, oh, I don't know, let's say November of next year or so. Green News Report is next. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to the Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Boy, that 
was a lot of news for uh, for one hour. <laughs> and if you thought that was a lot of news, just stay tuned for the second subscribers only hour. Oh dear. Where we're really gonna really gonna kick it off. Yeah. There's, uh, there's so. no second subscribers hour. What? <laughs> All right. Anyway, yeah, we're running late, so let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. Looking at Louisiana now, it can serve as a model for what we can expect to happen in the future. Scientists find a dramatic, abnormal rise in sea levels in the southeast. Our proposed rule would dramatically reduce the number of people with elevated cancer risk from breathing air toxins. Biden EPA limits air pollution from chemical and plastics plants. Plus, there's a bell to left. That's gone. It's out of Tiger Stadium. Global warming is boosting home runs in Major League Baseball. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Leave my gas stove, my air conditioner, my light bulbs, red meat, SUV, and especially my toilet paper alone. Hey, Sean Hannity, after lying to your audience for all of these years, don't you find it strange that not a single one of those things has been taken from you? Food for thought. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, never mind that liar, Sean Hannity. What (laughs) truths do you have to share with us today? Well, first up, March 2023 was the second warmest March ever recorded since record-keeping began in the 1850s. That's according to Europe's climate change service, Copernicus. The fact that March 2023 clocked in as the second hottest March is very concerning as it arrives at the tail end of a La Nina weather pattern that tends to cool global temperatures. Sea ice extent in both the Arctic and Antarctic are also at near record lows. So we had a La Nina. It should have been cooler this year. We ended up with the second warmest March ever. Sadly, yes. Okay. Ominously, the temperature of the world's oceans also hit a new all-time record high last week since satellite records began in 1980, according to new data from NOAA. Scientists say the new record is causing rare, simultaneous marine heat waves around the planet. Mm. And the new data strongly suggests we'll see a warming El Nino pattern coming later this year, which tends to spike global temperatures and intensify extreme weather disasters like heat waves, storms, and floods. It's a great time to get ready now before extreme weather hits your area. You can get started at the website ready.gov. In related news, multiple new studies have documented an abnormal and dramatic rise in sea levels along the U.S. Gulf and southeastern coasts over just the last decade. One federal tide gauge at a site near New Orleans recorded sea level now eight inches higher than in 2006. Sea level rise is not uniform, but all of the studies found a similar accelerating trend since 2010 across the U.S. Gulf and southeast, rising on average about an inch every two years, a rate that one scientist called, quote, unprecedented in at least 120 years. The new data raises new concerns that coastal economic and industrial hubs like New Orleans, Miami, and Houston are at more risk from rising seas and earlier than previously predicted, alongside some of the nation's most exposed and poorest regions. Some good news. The Environmental Protection Agency has proposed new air pollution standards for carcinogenic chemicals from chemical and plastics plants nationwide, 
aimed at reducing harmful, toxic emissions across the country. The first update to the rules in 20 years will curb releases of more than 80 hazardous chemicals that drift beyond a facility's property lines into nearby residential areas and will primarily affect industrial facilities along the Gulf Coast in Ohio and West Virginia. Standing in front of smokestacks of Louisiana's Cancer Alley, EPA Administrator Michael Regan said the new rules will significantly reduce the risks of asthma, cancer, and other ailments for people living near those industrial sites. The number of people with elevated risk would drop by an astounding 96%. Everyone in this country deserves clean air to breathe, clean water to drink, and the opportunity to live a healthy life. Some more good news. Retail giant Walmart is dramatically expanding its electric vehicle fast charging network. Axios reports Walmart plans to install fast chargers at thousands of its stores across the country by 2030, a major expansion beyond its current 280 locations. The company says 90 percent of Americans live within 10 miles of a Walmart, so the move will put fast EV charges within reach of far more drivers. Yeah, but you have to go to Walmart. Finally, researchers at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire crunched data from 100,000 Major League Baseball games, finding that higher temperatures caused a surge in the number of homers hit out of the park. Why? Because hotter air is thinner, causing less drag on the ball. The study estimates that since 2010, global warming has delivered nearly 60 more home runs per baseball season than might otherwise occur. So, yes, more home runs are more likely as global temperature rises. Because of the drag on the balls. Yes! For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bratblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Put me in cold. Anything anything you'd like to add? I don't think I'm going to add anything to that. I can barely hold it together. You're not going to touch that, eh? Nope. I don't blame you. we got to get out our thanks to our producer, (laughs) Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That's made possible by those of you kind enough to click one of them donate buttons or go straight to bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, by the way, is green news at bradblog.com. Yes, I am. <laughs> and you can find, follow, and share us on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons at the Brad Blog. I will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.